Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine where we explore just what it is that draws people to this crazy and infuriating game. My name's Rod Murray and each month I bring you these conversations with a member of the golf fraternity who has an interesting story to tell. If you haven't already done so, dig into the archives and listen back to some of our earlier episodes. Also, make sure to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcasting app. It is free and it means that you'll never miss a future episode. If you'd like to get in touch with a suggestion or some feedback, you can contact me directly on Twitter at at Rod underscore Murray, that's M-O-R-R-I, or Golf Australia magazine at at Golf Ostmag, G-O-L-F-A-U-S-T-M-A-G. You can also head to the Facebook page, just search for Golf Australia magazine, or you can get in touch by email to golf at golfaustralia.com.au. I'll put links in the show notes to each of those to make it easy for you to find us. That's enough of the homework. Let's move on to today's episode because this one was a real treat to record. Now, I readily admit that I'm somewhat biased, but as a golfer with an interesting course architecture, the name Paul Daly is one that I've been familiar with for the best part of two decades. That's how long Paul's been publishing books about the subculture that is golf course design. And frankly, it's an endeavour that, as you'll hear, truly is a labour of love. Now, while I'd known about Paul's books for a long time, it's to my eternal shame that I'd never met the man. And it became increasingly evident what a mistake that was when I got to sit down with him at the Long Island Golf Club earlier this year. Paul is self-effacing, engaging, eloquent, thoughtful, but most importantly, he's knowledgeable and interesting to listen to. Now, for those who might be nervous, we do talk about a lot more than just golf course architecture, though, as you'd imagine, it does get its fair share of airtime. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul Daly. The podcast series, Paul, is called The Thing About Golf. So I guess it's a good place to start. What's the thing about golf for Paul Daly? It's a tremendous question. It's a big, <laughs> a big uh, question. Broad question. The thing about golf is um, there's, uh, there's not just relaxation, enjoyment, the sociability of being with people you like, but also about being out in uh, beautiful environments. Occasionally they might be heathland or forested, uh, parkland, there might be dunes land, um, escarpments, lynx land, the whole thing, just the nature's variety. But then, of course, there's the architecture and, and my... Probably my main connection, other than playing, is uh, with my long-standing interest in the architecture related to golf. You're quite a good player. Uh, you play to a decent standard still to, to this day, I think, from memory. You're very kind. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm off 12. Everybody's a good player to me. <laughs> Look, I'm uh, stranded on a, a three-handicap uh-huh. and uh, have been known to carry a fairly bulky, bulky, non-conforming putter. <laughs> non-conforming, not as far as the rules go, but uh, it doesn't conform to my wishes. Right, not orthodox. <laughs> so, uh, so you're a competent golfer. So my guess is that golf's probably been a part of your life for a good portion of your life? Uh, as long as I can remember from the days of when I was uh, five or six, um, going back to the Western District in Western Victoria, where my father was a bank manager at places like uh, Tarang, um, Cobden, Warrnambool, and all these places, Apollo Bay. And so wherever uh, he went and, and uh, my mum went, of course, myself and my two um, brothers and sisters, we went as, mm-hmm. as well. 
Mm-hmm. And was golf something that – was it a gift from your dad? How did golf come into your life? As a, you, you can't yes. remember a time when it wasn't there. Where did it come from? Dad was very strategic from, uh, from very early ages. He would strategically leave a putter or a seven iron um, in the hall – or out in the kitchen, and of course I couldn't walk past without swinging or putting it, and so it, it quickly got into my my mm-hmm. way of um, everyday activities, just having a, a swing in the head and a chip out the back. Yeah, which is a fantastic way to be and to grow up. Yes. Um, I, I often wonder, Paul, the things that shape people. So we're going to come to where you are now in life as a sort of a self-publisher of golf architecture books and there must have been a time when that would have seemed like a crazy thing to be involved in and yet you've been doing it for some time but the things that shape people so I read a number of interviews and things that you've done your dad moved around a lot and because golf was part of your life Mm. whenever you moved as as is for a lot of people who travel you'd go and join the local golf club yes now I guess I wonder what role that might have played in your later interest in golf courses themselves because, of course, for many people, their introduction to golf is at a club and for most of their lives, they play that golf course. Mm. They don't venture much beyond. No. And it can be quite a shock for people like that to come across yes. a course that is somewhat different. What do you think about that? Tease out perhaps that notion of... Yes, um, I think because our family knew nothing but change and moving and going from one town to another, joining <clears throat> the next golf club... Mm-hmm. Uh, even before I was actually aware of any architecture, just purely given to the, the fun of hitting a ball. And in those days, I'd try and hit it as far <laughs> as I possibly could without thinking any refinery. But um, um, somehow the die must have been cast. That, for instance, at Apollo Bay, there was the old third hole, which went along the coast. And um, to the right of the, the fairway was about 250 metres of fairway. And... Um, in typically parallelism, there was all these sausage-like holes, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, because the Polar Bay uh, is and has been laid out on such a very small plot mm-hmm. uh, that somehow they squeezed nine holes in. But this third hole, it used to strike me that the further you'd go to the right to avoid the cliff on the left, the more progressively you would be blinded into the green and then there'd be an, an out of bounds behind which is a terribly unfair of course of course <laughs> um and our favorite word in golf yes we'll come to that <laughs> um not that not that i truly believe that golf should be fair and uh, you know i'm an older uh, traditions plays it as lies and don't expect too much um and don't look for for fairness where fairness shouldn't exist mm-hmm. but that's a whole different topic it is but anyway so that that third hole really got into me um and it um for many years i, I pondered how, how they would design that mm-hmm. hole and then i i guess there was another example at cobden um where cobden another very small plot of land had nine holes crammed into it and there was the, the sixth hole which i used to call snake galley uh, you'd keep crossing this galley and I remember one time coming across a monster snake, and it it scared the heck out of me. <laughs> but um, in fact, it set That's up. That's the correct a, response, by the way, Paul. Is yeah. to be terrified of a snake. <laughs> yes, and uh, and on, on the other side of the course, there was a railway line, um, and so uh, even then, I was thinking about the marvellous way that the architect would have you climbing over this over this creek time after time, even in a little nine-hole course. Mm-hmm. So yeah, little things were starting to. Uh, get into my mind and I was well this is well before the age of 20 I was only probably 15 at that time Mm. in Cobden what about the role of golf 
as part of community then for somebody who moves around a lot. I've interviewed many people in the past mm. who travel for their work and golf becomes the first and most important point of contact with the rest of the community. When you're new in town, yes, can be an awful place to be, can't it? Correct. I think if you're in a small place, if you join the local cricket club, football club or golf club, you virtually know the whole town within three or four weeks. Um, and it, it is a meeting point. Um, there's a lot of loneliness out there. Uh, and so not only do avid golfers... Uh, and avid sports people join these clubs. Sometimes it's a, it's a, a beautiful way for people to mm. get together. Mm. Indeed. So you've subconsciously, I'm guessing, sort of developed an interest in architecture and been exposed to different courses. Do all golf courses, or almost all golf courses, have something architecturally to recommend them, do you think? It's interesting you say that. Um, I've never struck a, a golf course yet that doesn't have at least one standout holes. There can be some very poorly designed golf courses uh, that may be poorly routed, uh, make no sense, and yet somewhere in the middle there'll be an absolute gem of a hole. Um, so I'm yet often to by s- accident. Yeah, 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 yeah at times by accident. Yes, <laughs> and often by accident. So I'm yet to see a golf course that is um, either of no redeeming feature or cannot be redeemed. Uh, and of course, another topic again, but some of and we might see more of this in the future, is that um, there was a trend started in America some years back called the Start Over, where they looked at um, a course that had been, say, poorly designed on magnificent free-draining uh, sandy subsoil with all the geological advantages and tremendous vegetation, but was poorly designed. What would happen if you actually, uh, quote-unquote, blew the thing up and started Start again. again, started again. A mm. um, hundred years later, what could that course be? And um, it it got some appeal a few years ago in America and um, for one reason or another that's died down a little bit, but it may well come back in mm-hmm. the future. It, it feels like we'll go down this rabbit hole a bit later. It feels to me like the future of golf course on will be repairing and improving existing courses rather than starting new courses. There'll be a lot less new courses and a lot more, what can we do with our existing assets? And particularly true in public golf, I think, and that will be to the good of the game. That's a spot on, and uh, because land is finite, um, suburbia keeps growing, boundaries are finite, and uh, already many golf courses are in magnificent um, uh, environments where they had the pick of the the land many years ago before Mm -hmm. suburbia Mm -hmm. encroached. Um, I think also, of course, we'll see a lot more 9, 12 and 15 hole layouts Mm -hmm. um, coming up. Uh, That's that's becoming more evident in Europe. And um, so it's fascinating. And that's one of the things about architecture is it never actually stays still, golf course architecture. Being living, breathing organisms, there's always something uh, uh, to attend to, mm-hmm. both as an architect but also as a writer and editor yeah. and publisher. Uh, you know, like yourself you, you, in, in your magazine, um, your podcast, there's always some fresh information or a new angle to look at an old thing. These two questions are somewhat – actually, I'll ask them one at a time. There will be people who've started to listen to this and already said to themselves, oh, golf course architecture, I can't stand it, (laughs) and turned it off. Yes. What do you say to those people, those golfers who say they don't have an interest in the architecture? A, how do people come to that opinion, you think? And B, are those of us who are interested in it, the the term golf snob gets thrown around a lot at people who are interested in architecture. Mm -hmm. Is it partly our fault that we have that image problem? What can we do to fix it? And why would it be good for the game if we 
had more people interested in that side of yeah, the game. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a fair comment. Um, we perhaps have not been as good at um, explaining it in the terms that the everyday golfer, the weekend warrior, can um, can appreciate. And I think one of the areas we've failed in is to point out that if the average golfer on 15, 16, 20 would actually pay a little bit more attention to the architecture and try and get into the mind of the designer or the designers and look at their intent and see the way holes are rarely straight. They tend to go a bit to the right, a bit to the left, and in some instances they go a bit both ways. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a joke in there, Rod, but I won't touch that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> After we turn the yeah. mics off, you can fill me in, yes. Um, but actually, if, 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 the, if we could communicate to the weekend warrior that by taking more notice of the architecture, they actually would knock off three or four shots from their score because um, the, the primary reason that most golfers, club golfers, come out is for A, routine, enjoyment, exercise. Some of them may have been under doctor's orders, get out there or otherwise your next coronary is coming. Um, the sociability factor. And, of course, we all know that there are some golfers who purely play to get to the 18th screen, to get into the 19th hole <laughs> and down five pots. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong that, at all. You know, that's as long as they can drive safely or mm-hmm. perhaps uh, get alternative um, and driving, uh, you know, say a taxi when these days Uber. So there are so many different reasons that people play golf. Architecture, without doubt, um, and I set my print run, my book, print run against this known known, or in Donald Rumsfeld speak, a known known, <laughs> is that... There might be between one and five golfers per club worldwide who actually play purely and simply or primarily to enjoy the architecture. So these, these wow. people within each club are, are possibly viewed you know, as <laughs> <laughs> oddities, yeah. uh, two heads, and um, um, so it's up to them in, in some ways at a, at a local level to to help spread the news that, hey, architecture, it's not a thing, it's not elitist, it's not a snobbish thing, a snobby thing. Um, it's there for everyone to enjoy and to appreciate. It's always struck me, I've overused this line, but whenever I encounter people who say, I have no interest in architecture, my first question is, do you have a favourite golf hole? <laughs> yes. No golfer can answer no. And so by default, every golfer has an interest in architecture, yes, doesn't he? Yes. If you like one hole more than others, there has to be a reason. Correct. Um, Correct, yes. Uh, and that's a bit – it's a somewhat confrontational way to make the point. It mm. doesn't probably help advance the discussion at all. Um, what about that second point of the importance of architecture to the game? Even for those who don't take an interest in architecture, most will enjoy – around at a course like Royal Melbourne, which you've told me is your favourite, mm. because of the architectural questions it asks, mm. then they will perhaps at a public golf. Very few golfers could play at Albert Park and Royal Melbourne and say they enjoyed both equally. Yes, yes, yes. So the importance of architecture to the game, even if people don't appreciate it, is the game healthier if you make the courses better and more interesting? It is better because... Um People will enjoy their uh, if they're if they're routed correctly, um, if the journey that the architect can present to to the golfers to to get them around um, a, a set distance that changes from every golf club in a cohesive manner uh, that has to be 
to the enjoyment of, of golfers. It has to make the game better. Let's come back to you because, of course, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you've, you've, you've been publishing golf course architecture books for... Well, since late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, about 2002. Okay. How, many, how many have you done in total? Uh, well, there's, there's now the seventh volume is mm-hmm. coming out shortly of Golf Architecture. There's another one called Favourite Holes by Design. Um, I did a book with Keith Cutton, um, we'll Evolution about, yeah. of Golf Course Fabulous Design. Book. Thank you. Um, um, and there's been o- there's been others, uh, say nine or ten. Nine or ten. Uh, and uh, I've I've worked with other people on their books as well, mm-hmm. um, with um, Ross Perrett and Kim Baker on golf courses of the Mornington Peninsula, mm-hmm. and done some work with Gary Lisbon uh, with his. Um, he's done two or three, but the very first one, Great Golf Down Under, um, and um, one of the favourite books I've done was with um, John Green, Dr. John Green from Royal Melbourne historian archivist um there on the golf courses of rural melbourne that's um i thought that was an, a fairly important book and uh, it's a spiritual home of great yes. golf in australia isn't it Robert? it's I a very so. it's a very special place it's in special world place. golf and certainly in yeah. australia it's mm. um it's only real crime in the scheme of things as being australian and not american because i'm quite convinced that um whilst um I would possibly put the the east course as the third best in Australia, um, with the west as the best course. Uh, if it was American, for instance, if it was elsewhere, it may well be considered in the top three. Thirty six hole um, complexes. The, the actual west course. Oh, itself, just the west, yeah. Um, the complex, the composite itself, um, as far as rating that would would um, I think also be in the top three as well because. Um, there's some things are, um, are set in stone, concrete, you know, like mafia boots at the bottom of the harbour. <laughs> uh, Pine Valley is immovable. Cypress mm-hmm. Point is immovable. Um, Shinnecock Hills is immovable. Um, did I say Cypress Point? I'm having a you senior moment. You might have mentioned yeah, Cypress Point. Yeah. That's okay. And, and so on and so on. Muirfield. And there's um, uh, and hopefully Royal Dornock. Is is immovable, so how does someone and and then of course Sand Hills, you know, mm-hmm. which started the great you know Re- rebirth, rebirth of, of golf, uh, you know, organic golf, destination golf, um, authentic. I authentic think is the, golf. is the word we use. The yes. young people are woke and authentic. I think authentic, is the word which is, and, and that makes sense, doesn't yeah, it? Authentic, authentic. Yep, yeah. and it's the, obviously the poster child for um, uh, minimalist golf. Uh, although it's interesting, people have the wrong feeling about minimalist golf, thinking mm-hmm. they just might move a little teaspoon of, of you know, <laughs> to quote, say, Tom Doak. Out there with a spade. Yes, but yes no. the, the The minimalists, um, uh, whilst that's their preference, when they need to move, mm-hmm. they move heaven and earth. They move heavily, but their preference is not to, but they won't shy away from it if they have to. And elsewhere, they tread lightly, um, reducing the, the footprint. So... Um, as far as the ratings go, as far as rural Melbourne, you know, if it's never going to happen because it's Australian, but and we're only uh, musing here. But mm-hmm. so I, I personally think it's the best course. Uh, it, it's certainly the best course I've ever seen. Um, I have not played Cypress or Pine Valley, so I can't comment. And and photos are very um, can be deceiving. Photos are wonderful, but they, I feel like they're always. 
They're like a high sugar food. They don't really satisfy. <laughs> they taste good, yeah. and but it's not very satisfying to look at photos no. of golf courses. I love to look at photos yes. of golf courses, but there's a there's a lack of satisfaction. You, you want to go there. That's what you want. You to want to go there. You, you want, want to, to see there. it in three D yes. and smell it and feel it and Correct. touch it. And yeah, walk they on can it. never tell the full story. So anyway, Royal Melbourne, um, um, we love it, and uh, and just just on the rating long question, live. Paul. I feel like we get that wrong too. We want we want to say one, two, three, four, five. And really, I think what we mean is top ten, top ten, yes, top twenty. Yeah, actually, I, top I, thirty. I'd go along with what you say. In fact, um, I've spoken to Mike Clayton about this in the past, and I think um, he's got very few views on this sort of yeah. stuff. So that would have been a short conversation, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think once you once you you know to say something's the twenty ninth course or the thirtieth, it's academic. Of course, you know, it makes no uh, sense. and you don't have to be an academic type to to acknowledge it's academic. No. Um, so I think talking terms of you know uh, top tier, second tier, third tier, you know. I take I take um, Tea Tree Gully, for instance, in South Australia. It's a very good course, but it could never hope to uh, compete with, say, Royal Adelaide, Kuyonga, and so on and so on, the big the big four over there, Glenelg and the Grange, you know, you list them all there. So you might say Tea Tree is towards the top of the second tier. It's a nice way to say it. It's not saying, you know, Tea Tree is a sixth, seventh or eighth, ninth, tenth best course. No. Talking in terms of tier uh, or in, 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 in the top 100, you know, a bracket between, say, 1 and 10 uh, and then, say, 11 and 20. You'll, I think you'll, it's a, it's, you'll still get discussion, won't you? There will never be agreement. <laughs> there'll never, there'll never but be you know agreement. what, Rod? The more I re- um, look at these things, the more I realise that the only true important rating is yours. That's right. Yours, because yeah. that's going to fuel everything, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, certainly, an, uh, a well-written article or a photo and so on that that can have some impact and might influence, might get you there. But once you're there and you've played it, uh, you know where in your mind it slots. You know exactly. You know, and we see this down in um, um, you know with the Cape Wickham and and the Ocean Dunes. People, you know, it's it's a long way to go, and there's a little bit of logistics involved. And so part of the appeal, I think, of some of these modern part of the appeal. is, is the yes. the pilgrimage to get there. Correct. The suffering you do to to get there yes. to get the reward at the yes. end is. But the thing is, um, part of the interesting stimulation is that people won't go there and play Ocean Dunes alone. They won't play. Cape Wickham alone. In fact, cleverly, people say we're going to play Curry as well, 109, 10, 111 year old, mm-hmm. one of the best par- nine hole courses in the mm-hmm. world. Let's play all three. And you speak to these people, and every now and again you'll say, Some people, I prefer the little nine holer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Not many, but I've had that said to me. Others will say, Oh, no, 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 Cape Wickham. Look mm-hmm. at Cape Wickham. And others will say, Oh, no. Station Station you know, there's more golf at Ocean Dunes. Cape Wickham will knock, knock, knock us out instantaneously, no doubt. Ocean Dunes may or may not. But some people are saying there's more golf ability, more golf, quote-unquote golf. So I'm not here to say which is which, but I, I'm pointing out that that is just further evidence that the only rating that counts is mm. your own. The specifics aren't really important, are they? It's the discussion... Mm. That is, is an enjoyable part. Any trip to Barnboogle Dunes, it's guaranteed... To stimulate, yes. ...that, that what you will do, and it's the same abandoned dunes and yeah. go, you sit in the bar afterwards, afterwards and argue about which is better. Yeah, both, not just, uh, you know, is, is Lost Farm better than Barnboogle, no. but within Barnboogle and Lost Farm, which are your favourite hole? That's which exactly Which are the best right. holes? Exactly Which right. could have done better? Um, 
Yeah, and one of the great appeals of golf. It stimulates the mind, doesn't it? And you know it stimulates the mind because you're still talking about it after you've stopped doing yeah, it. And that's golf. I mean, in other pursuits, you can't wait to get away, you know, like, say, the dishes, using the hoovering, hoovering around the... Yep. Oh, I've just, just used that <laughs> to Google to, to hoover. Um, you can't wait for these pursuits to finish, but not golf. So getting back to ratings and magazines and podcasts, surely that's one of the benefits and one of the best things about them is that it's they're guaranteed to stimulate conversation. And discussion. Keep, the, keep things right. on the boil mm-hmm. um, and, and, and part of the, the, the whole marketing machination. But... Um, I want to come to a discussion yep. about modern media and its place and how we might be going with golf courses. But back to getting some information about you. So you started life in Western Victoria, and professionally, you were, you were in chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Which feels like an awful long way from being a golf course architecture book publisher. It's a long way, yes. Um, how does that journey take place? And could you... This is often a silly question. I suppose you, you couldn't possibly, but I, I think you'll get the point of what I'm trying to make. Could you ever have imagined at any point during your career in chemistry, could you have ever pictured yourself being a golf course architecture book publisher as a way to no, in the, fill your days and make The answer you, is no. I, yeah. I gravitated towards it. I, I tried to put two and two together. It took a while. Um, that I love golf and I always enjoyed writing. Um, I was not a great student at school because I was always daydreaming about golf, so I, I never, ever bore down. I never really did the hard yards. But strange enough, I, I did very well at English, and that that um, I later reflected on that and put the two together, love of golf and the love of English, the English language and writing. And then later in life, it, it, it came to me that I, I don't want to be um, a rep on the road, and then I was a national sales manager. And um, chemistry and, and pharmacology, uh, anatomy, physiology, and uh, disease states, and all the new drugs. You know, there was uh, it was a very big role, and and uh, sounds like a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Like yeah. <laughs> Training the new reps to to go out there and be with um, either pharmacists or um, specialists, GPs. Um, and so on and so on. But no, I was keen to get out. I had I had a, a good long career within the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. um, and I, I retired approximately the age of 39, 40, wow. um, knowing I wouldn't be retiring. I'd, no. I'd get straight no. on and do <laughs> something. Uh, what, what you wanted to do, yes. a, a second career, yes. essentially. It, it must have required quite a leap of faith, though. It was, but if I, if I could just well, reveal something in the intimacy of this little cathedral mm-hmm. we have here, Rod. Beautiful room. We're here <laughs> Long Island Country Club, I think you remember, the Long National Island. Long Island. Yes, a beautiful it's place. Really lovely. Club we're in the boardroom. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's got a lot of old, and thank you old to world appeal for letting us play. No, it's yes. very decent of Long Island the National to do that. Um, that um, I should actually confide that the very the first book I ever did, Links Golf: The Inside Story, because uh, of my, my love of, I actually did on uh, Company Time. Which, oh, nice! Uh, you know, I've uh, I've gotten over the guilt of that many years <laughs> later to, to reveal that that um, I'd be in a, a hospital or a, a GP and. GP clinic and there'd be a hell of a queue and I had this choice I could either do some work towards my first book or or fill in a report uh, a weekly report <laughs> <laughs> of um, business activity on territory and uh, so that became very obvious that uh, I put yeah, that to one side and, and so I kept nibbling away for the last year that um, I was on the road I nibbled away uh, to the point that when I retired from the industry, I virtually had this book ready to go. 
I had this manuscript, Link's Golf, the Inside uh, Story. Um, so it was uh, 1999. Uh, by, but at that stage, I'd already had three um, pilgrimages all over Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, of th- to sort of feed the, yeah, the fever, Yeah, three, four, so five, six-week duration, sometimes with my wife and, mm-hmm. and other times without... With your mistress, Golf. <laughs> my, my mistress, Golf, <laughs> That's yes. right. So are you telling me, Paul, that not only is a, an awful lot of golf rit- literature read in doctor's waiting rooms but some has been written in doctor's waiting rooms as well that's what i'm here to tell you right yes yeah what a revelation that is the whole thing's been worth it if just for that piece of information alone that is fantastic stuff as you're talking there about some of the terms you were using business reports on the road and the travel and this and that Mm. it's very dry it's It's very dry yeah it's most people's experience of work it's conservative and it's pharmaceutical and it's business yeah it is very business. It's yeah. ties and yeah. formalities and handshakes and dinners and conferences and all of that sort of thing, you know. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's how business looks. But it must have required quite a leap of faith to go from that, which is very safe. Very the appeal safe of it is it's extremely yes. safe. Like the public service. The money comes into the bank account. every week. You know it's going to come in. You know how much there is and you know what you can do. Then you can plan around that. Mm. To leap from that to essentially an unknown. Mm. I'm going to become an author, and then later a publisher. Um, it was a big what was, trick. What happened internally there for you? That's, that's a bigger decision yeah. than most people would probably appreciate. It's a I huge suspect. thing because I went from the, the what did you, And What did your wife say, which is what every bloke out there is wondering? Yeah. How did you sell it to her? No, that's right. Uh, well, actually, I must have learned my selling skills quite well to be able to pass <laughs> that through to Penny. But, um, yeah, it was a leap in, into the unknown because not only was I going from that to editing, writing, publishing, I actually had to teach myself to be um, in small business. Um, mm-hmm. I know small business can be what anything from knowing... Podcasting to... Very right up to, is it 20 or 30 before... It it's quite, it's quite 40, a few. It's a lot more, than it, a lot more than either of us would like to but be. Let, let me just say that I was in a very small business. And um, so this business with ASIC and registering and forms and... Um, mm-hmm. Tax, GST, BAS statements. And so it relied uh, on me. um, You know, here I was thinking, well, hang on, it's one thing to... um, Let's be honest. When people work for companies, and I'd say particularly in the pharmaceutical, if they're putting in 40 hours a week, you know, there might be an hour here or there that, you know, perhaps people skive Mm. off. Of course. um, You'd hope. Yeah. You'd drab old world if they're not. Yes. Then I was thinking, well, hang on. That is then. This is now. This is my own company. I've got to be a bit careful here. There's no skiving off when you're doing it for yourself. And you know what, Rod? Here's another revelation. I think I went too much the other way. Worked too too much. Yeah, I was perhaps a little bit concerned that um, given the opportunity, this skiving off thing, that might become a little bit habitual. So I went the other way. And, And I'm only now just thinking about that 20 years later. Time to time to slow down a little bit. So, could you have got here if you hadn't been that way? Um, no, I wouldn't have. No, I wouldn't have. And did it feel like work? Uh, it never felt. See, that's that's probably that's one that's of the, the reasons. That's the danger, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't feel like work. What I do, there's a real blurred line that um, having the business in the house mm-hmm. um, with uh, where you, you don't have to get dressed up in a suit and tie, mm-hmm. you don't have to walk through the door, you don't have to. Um, you know, check the photocopier and all this kind of stuff. So y- you just can keep at it the whole time, meaning late nights, mm-hmm. very early morning starts. So the thing is, I should have known that there was no worry that I'd be inclined to skive off. I should have been better prepared for the fact that if anything, 
um, I would burn the candle at both ends. Yep. And and I know Penny, she's very she keeps an eye on that and and pulls mm-hmm. me back into the line. The work from home thing, I do it myself mm-hmm. too. Is a you're never really at work and you're never really at home. No. You live in this no, state no. that's between the two. Yes, yes. And it, most of what you read, and I've never managed to do it, suggests that you have an area of the house that is the office, that you go to that at a set time each day and you work for your time that you've allotted for work. And you can work long hours if you mm. want to, but, mm. but that there is a time to arrive mm. and there's a time to leave mm. and that that room is only for work, that it's not for something else as well. I was, I've never managed to do it, but I know exactly what you're describing. Yeah. That you never really... Yeah. And it's okay, but for people around you, mm. that can be quite it's, difficult. It's, it's challenging for them. Because you're never really at home. You're never really at that's home. That's a problem. No, that's right, yes. So, oh, I can relate to what you're saying, and mm. you've, you've experienced it over, mm. over, over good many years yourself. Yeah. So I think the main thing is to be aware of it and, and keep mm. trying to do better and um, not shortchange your partner mm. or your family. We don't have children, uh, although we're fond of saying that we had two miniatures mm. now for 14 years. <laughs> okay. Very. Um, Pepper and Heidi, they, they were the nearest things um, that we, we came to. We were on IVF for a good decade oh, and okay. we gave it a, uh, a right royal tilt and um, we, we threw the whole thing into it. What impact does that have on a person, Paul? Uh, and, and everything that comes with the work and the change of perspective that goes from a safe job to let's publish a yeah, golf book. Is there yeah. a perspective change in there? It that- had a massive change, a massive impact because it was the impetus between for two things. Penny was um, a highly regarded classroom primary school teacher, and that was the impetus for her to, or the catalyst to say, well, uh, without children, uh, perhaps can devote myself to higher office and she became an excellent principal mm-hmm. um, over the last 10 to 15 years of her working career um, and a highly regarded principal at Knox Gardens. You. For myself, um, it, it threw me further into into golf um, and it, it helped make me realise that I would be leaving the pharmaceutical industry, helped me realise I'd be doing more in golf. Uh, in the golf publishing world and golf writing, um, so it it was very impactful uh, when mm. when the door is finally slammed. Um, see, for ten years, there's always the hope that on the next cycle, um, on the next um, time we do it, we'll, we'll, we might have luck. But of course, one day down the track, um, everyone who goes through IVF will have a success or a degree of success but um, we're in the early days where success rates were in the 10 to 15 percent range um but uh, so i applaud my wife penny for going through that you know what it's it's always harder on the woman because um they're the ones taking uh the medicines mm-hmm. and uh, uh Is something that ever comes to a resolution paul do you ever resolve that I wonder. Um, it's a big thing in a life. Isn't it? The, the whole point of being here, it would seem, biologically and scientifically, yeah. is to procreate. Yes, yes. I think we've, we've come to a resolution and um, we realised. But it, it was still painful. It lingered for many years mm. uh, and it fueled us to, 
to do other things and to work hard and perhaps in hindsight um, bury our heads in work um, but we've made peace on it and um, yeah. uh, I don't mean to pry I just, no, 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 that's fine. I'm interested in what sort of shapes people and helps them well, make what, because common sense and you know this you've been in a proper mm. business common sense says to you that the dumbest thing in the world you could do is leave a well paid job mm. and go and start publishing golf books yeah. that's crazy nobody in the world is going to give Doesn't you the go ahead to do that no. and say that's a good idea Paul you would fail any business model of course yeah you've done it yes. and done it successfully yes um, <laughs> which is both wonderfully you know th- thumb to the nose <laughs> at those who would say otherwise but there's reasons motivations why people do those things isn't there yes i, I think um i was motivated by the fact that i i had something to offer and i wanted to be involved but also also, I think if I'm truly honest with myself, from the age of you know, five or six, I always wanted to be a golf pro. Yeah, I wanted to be a golfer. I, well, actually, that's not strictly true. I wanted to be a lead guitarist. Right. <laughs> it's an eclectic mix of yeah, desires. A lead guitarist or, or a golf, uh, golf professional. You could have been John Daly. <laughs> well, just the addition of the letter E. Yeah, that's right. And um, no, the thing is, he, he's got six more addictions than I have. Um, we won't go through all. Yeah, he needs to be a golf pro to afford them. Yeah. Nobody else in work could afford the sorts of things. Dear old that, John. Dear old John. I'll never forget watching him... Um, out for the President's Cup and it was the days when Sandringham across the road was the practice mm-hmm. and there he was, he was hitting these balls I'd never seen balls hit with such ferocity. What an extraordinary talent what an amazing natural raw talent. He was a raw, raw talent. I recall seeing yeah. him hit a bunker shot on the first at Huntingdale yeah. from the, green, the bunker side green yes. on the left. On the left, yeah the, which was just death. Was the know. pin hard left as well? I think so. Yeah. And from memory, the, the ball never got more than a couple of inches off the off the green, but it hit the green and just skidded to a stop yeah. three feet behind the yeah. hole. And he, it wasn't an accident. It was the most amazing shot I think I've ever seen. Yeah. And he just had that. We all think of the long hitting, but what a magnificent pair of hands he had around the green. Magnificent pair of hands, and we saw that in, um, was it 95? Yeah. 1995, and... Um, the lag The putting. lag putting from 89. You know, beautiful. He's hopper. lagging it up to a foot, and um, yeah. uh, beautiful free, Lovely. you know, a, a, a non-mechanical free, free-flowing mechanism, yeah, his wonderful. swing, and, uh, um, you know, if you think at, at one end, uh, some of the... Well, actually, no, I won't go down that path. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not. We didn't I come together to talk path. about players. I'm go- I, I guess, I'm guessing I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to suggest, ask, has it been a satisfying, has it been what you expected it to be, publishing golf books? It's been very satisfying. It's been really satisfying. Because it can't have been easy. It's never been easy. Um, there's no money in it. Otherwise, I think more people would be doing mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, you know yourself, the level of detail required, checking, um, researching, writing, editing, proofing, and then checking again, re- re- fixing things all the way up until the printer pr- presses the button. Mm. And you inevitably get the book, the finished book, and the first thing you find on page one is a mistake yeah. that you've missed yeah. in the 52 previous yeah. readings. Correct. Of I, I'm that. of the opinion, Rod, that there's never been, um, certainly there's never been a golf yet, a golf book yet written, published, and produced without an error, um, and that might apply to all books of any genre. Every it's, written article, there's no question yeah, about that. Yeah, I think um, the, my, I take the attitude that given there will be an error in there to try and get this to market with the least amount of errors. The the task of... Um, to It would be possible to do a gold book without an error, but, but the, the proofreading 
uh, stage might take five years, who's going to do that for a single book? It's not going to happen. So and it would need more than one person. Yeah. The reality of yeah. proofreading is if you've missed it the first yes. time and the second time, yes. you can read it a hundred times, you'll never see it. Correct. You won't see it. You just won't see it. Yeah. It's already passed through there. It's, it's, it's given as yes. okay in the brain. And then there's the other mistake that um, gets in the golf books is that on the surface it appears it's well it's spelled correctly, the year's correct, but the actual detail's incorrect. Um, it was not person A, it was person B. But through that club's history, um, the writer of the first history will have incorrectly <laughs> researched it and then there'll be an update 30 or 40 years later for the, i say, the 75th or even the centenary. And so a mistake um, can, can be inadvertently passed down through the line over a century to the fact of its law, but the fact is it never happened. And then, of course, when you reveal that you know, the truth is it never happened, yeah. now you're the pariah. Yeah, correct, yeah. Because you're not running the company line no, now. No. You're going against the grain. It no. can cause all sorts of... Golf yeah. history is its own, as with all history, yeah. is its own sometimes toxic world, isn't it? it, it people get very passionate yeah. and worked up about yes. Things and yeah. make accusations about agendas and all sorts of things yes, that are, yes. may or may not be there. But, yeah. but, but I way. think, um, to everyone's credit, involved in golf publishing, um, the aim is to try and get them pretty right. You know, That's good. Is. Is. Have you been surprised by I mean, what, what? What sorts of reactions have you had? What were your expectations for? The first of the series of seven books, perhaps, might have been the benchmark. What did you think would happen? And what, and what about what have you thought about? What sort of feedback have you had, and how has that made you feel about the first? The first episode of a Golf Architects was purely, uh, purely dipping my toe in the water. I had no idea that uh, this would keep going. Um, I thought it was a good idea at the time um, to try and present um, similar articles from different viewpoints, but very importantly, not... Sorry, for, for those not familiar, so the books are essentially a collection of essays yes. by golf architects. Yeah, golf architects and golf writers, and in some instances, neither, but golf enthusiasts who have a... Um, a passion for golf course architecture and anyway the idea was not was definitely not to assemble 40 or 50 essays that were all singing out of the same hymn book that would reinforce a certain idea in the name of the title golf architecture a worldwide perspective i wanted to capture and present varying viewpoints uh, of different models around the world big scale, small scale, and also introduce um, uh, uh, Lene Mortensen uh, from Scandinavia who, um, who worked for uh, Marnock and Gaunt Architecture in England and, and other firms, but she broke out. And, and Anyway, so that struck me as fascinating that uh, there'd be a female, everyone knows dear old Alice, sadly passed away, mm-hmm. Alice, Alice Dye and, and, and others. But um, I thought that was great as a young girl, uh, who could be doing other things she she put her passion into architecture so i wanted to capture her thoughts on the industry um, but that's just one example and then we had all you know pete die and 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 the famous architects of the time this is going back 2000, 2000 what was the response like from them when you approached some well, of those big name people and said would you mind doing this i for was them? shocked um my my inclination was to pay these people but because i'd only very recently just started in publishing there was no money in the kitty to pay, pay anyone pay them with what <laughs> and, and, and actually I broached it with some people you know how much do you want for this article and they said oh no 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 there's no charge you're actually helping to promote our business and, and the industry and precious few people at that time 
were promoting the industry globally because, because it was not seen as a sexy thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the golf magazines had very little content on architecture uh, generally, you know, for, for obvious reason. They, mm -hmm. they need to sell magazines. Sure. So they were um, equipment-oriented um, and... Instruction. And, and equipment. instruction. We, know, we know what sells golf and You know what sells. So I think there was great appreciation from the marketplace. So all of a sudden I started getting unsolicited, unsolicited essays. And that was... I, I said to Penny, this is really starting to take off. All of a sudden it became obvious to me that um, this time next year, which was then back in 2002, we'll do volume two. And that was bigger and much bigger and more essays and more photographs. And, uh, and then, of course, volume three, I had the opportunity to put St Andrews Beach uh, on the front cover, uh, which I did. And... Um, and and it's been that way ever since. So mm -hmm. volume four, volume five, mm -hmm. volume six, and now uh, volume seven I'm working on at the moment, and that'll be coming out in July, July the 1st this year. I feel like, Paul, listening to you talk there, and I feel like the response from the architects is this. You didn't get into this to sell books. No. Oh, no. <laughs> that's not, it doesn't feel like that's your motivation. No, it's not. And it doesn't feel like Pete Dye's motivation for submitting something when you asked him, was to promote his business. What is it that's... There's an altruistic yeah. thing going on in the background, isn't there? There is an altru There is a thing, yeah. In fact, every book loses money. There you go. Um, I, if I... Yes, it's... I, I, I want to do my bit for golf, for golf course architecture, mm. and this is one way I feel I can do it. Don't, I certainly don't deserve any pats on the back because, um, you know, no-one's leading me by the bridle and saying, have a sip that water that's for others to decide i'm doing it i'm later. doing it of my, my own free will and i'm getting so much enjoyment um and that i think in time if i i and others keep hammering away maybe the tide may turn where down the track there might be 10 people per club globally that have a bit of an interest in this and can see what's going on in their favorite playground mm -hmm. Um, and some of their other playgrounds. So, um, yes, no, certainly there's not a money aspect. Yeah, I could have put my um, whatever talents I do have to other uses um, uh, and possibly skived off on a regular basis and... Put an addition on the house. <laughs> put an addition on the house. A putting green in the backyard you could have installed. More with holidays the, the for Penny and More holidays for you and yes, Penny to, yes. to places. Yes, but yeah. having said that, um, we did have a holiday recently um, in Canada and Alaska, as recently as last September, and um, Penny said, no, you'll need to play a bit of golf. I said, oh, no, 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 we're going away <laughs> for five weeks. So, all right, one game. And so at the National, we're reciprocals with... Um, Reciprocal rights with Capilano, Capilano um, Country Club in mm -hmm. um, just north of Vancouver, mm -hmm. in Vancouver, and that was a marvellous experience playing a, a, one of Stanley Thompson's most revered wow. golf courses. But um, as it turned out, I ended up playing two extra games: Jasper and Banff, uh, two more mm -hmm. Stanley Thompson's. So um, that was opportunities arose uh, during our travels at. Um, and we stayed at Banff and Jasper, and um, they were put into the itinerary. So I feel absolutely blessed to have played three of the best courses I've ever played, and um, 
Given. See, you are making money. The books are making money. <laughs> well, we you, you, you're two rounds of golf up on what you might have otherwise <laughs> been if there'd been no book. I must say, it strikes me, Penny's a very clever woman. She knows you're not going five weeks without playing golf without being unbearable. <laughs> That's so right. for her own sake, she's ensuring that there's some golf in there because otherwise you'll be... Uh, bear, bear with we're head. in the home of Stanley Thompson. Yeah. I must play some golf. Bear with a sore head. And we saw bears. We were there during rutting season and uh, we observed golfers coming up the 18th at Banff having to pick the balls up and say, that's the end of golf, you know, halfway towards the green on the 18th because the, the males were were eyeing off each other from 50 metres and the, the um, hesitant does were on yonder hillock um, thinking that um, they might be coming our way very shortly and uh, so we... I'm sitting here mouth agape, but of course it, it reminds me that just a couple of weeks ago there was a... We did a podcast with UK golf guy, mm-hmm. UK traveller who came over with the... And they had the same reaction about snakes. Oh, yeah. No, I accept that there's snakes on a golf course. It doesn't bother me. I imagine Canadians just accept, well, there's bears on the there's golf bears. course. Sometimes you pick your ball up and you leave. Yes. And we're from the outside going, my goodness, how can you live that way? But I oh, suppose... Yeah. It's all part of the environment. That's part of, you know... Joyful. Yeah, it's joyful. That's lovely, isn't it's it? It's lovely. To stop because there's bears about? Bears. I, think that's I think it's lovely, yeah. A little bit scary, but it's... Yeah. it's a, it, it, is, it is nice. It's a, it's a lovely thing. What do you think drives that, Paul, that... I think it comes back to the thing about golf, that wanting to make a contribution. There's no good reason. Yeah, it's a, good, it, it's a very good question. I mean, um, I, I think underpinning all, a lot of this also is the fact that, in hindsight, I should have worked harder on my game. I, I would have liked to have been a better player and um, travelled the world and, and participated in tournaments. But I was just... I just I was ignorant. I didn't know the work involved, um, what was required, and the single-mindedness. And I think that was the lesson I learned is that if I was going to go into this publishing, editing, writing thing, I really had to be single-minded. And and so that over over that outrated any concern of money. This is your golf career essentially. This is the replacement the, for your this golf. Is the this is the surrogate. I, I think there's a bit in that. Surrogate. That, I mean, word, yeah. it's all still evolving with me, so I can't be too. But I think it's. I think I've replaced the lack of good golf with uh, and, and the career with the writing and the mm. publishing. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it's two passions, isn't it? There's golf. Yes. And there's writing and slash books. Yeah, because the you know, and here's this interesting um, allied topic is that. The golf professional that gets too caught up in the architecture, he can't be potent. He, to the detriment of his game. He's going to go off because, you know, the ruthless nature of the top pros, the ruthless nature of the top pros, when the architect, you know, it's all, you know, down the middle and then onto the ground and hold that part and just getting further and further under par. We're not here for a haircut and to admire why this hole goes to the right. It should have gone to the left. It's an unnecessary distraction, isn't it? You know, it's... Um, Mm. Um, a damaging distraction it, for a good player. Yes, yes. But um, hmm. um, Something dawns on me. We often hear this. The smaller the ball, the better the writing. So in golf, that's fantastic for us because they don't get any smaller. Are we being all together too smug about that in golf or is there some truth to it, do you think? The smaller the ball. The smaller the ball, mm. the better the writing. Mm. It's an age-old saying in sports mm. writing. Mm. Cricket writing is better than soccer writing. Yeah, yeah. I think the best writing I've ever read is cricket writing. Um, um, I think golf writing is some of the best writing 
I've ever heard. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't say myself. People like Shackelford and Brad Klein and Herbert Warren Wind, mm-hmm. uh, the great Bernard Darwin, who he's he's the big daddy of all mm-hmm. of all writers. Um, he's he's the yardstick. Uh, Bernardo, great um, well, grandson of um, Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. So he had a heck of a heck of big shoes to to fill, and he he himself uh, has become um, very famous in his field, Bernard Darwin. But yes, I think it's it's the smaller the ball. That's right. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Golf ball smaller than the soccer ball. I think there's truth in whoever came up with that is I think uh, got it was probably a golf rider. Got it spot on. It's brilliant, isn't you know it? Who, could, I don't know who. I've just always a, been aware you've of. Give me a research project. Always yeah. been aware. Yeah. Well, ask Mike Clayton; he might know. Yeah. he's one who often. So I'm wondering if uh, whoever's written the treatise on marbles must have, <laughs> must have, <laughs> right. must have done it somewhere out there. Is the masterpiece? <laughs> I want that book. And it's about. Uh, it's about marbles. Yeah. But good. also I think um, golf is an unfathomable riddle, um, like the deepest mm. ocean that cannot be solved, and therefore um, there's always, you know... There's always more. There's it's always more that needs to be reported on and, and et cetera. You've led me neatly to the two final things that I wanted to cover with you, and they're kind of related. Uh, we'll take the first one second, but I'll tell you what it is so you can think about it while you're answering the first, and that is perhaps what is the future for books. But the first question is about the new media age that we live in, the digital age. I'm not sure how active you are on Twitter or some of the other social media channels, but there's a real bubble, which I'm a part of, so it can look bigger than it really yes. is, and I'm not sure what the reality yes. of it is. But there's a real bubble of people and golfers worldwide, this sort of loose band of brothers mm. with similar ideas to a lot of what mm. we've been talking mm. about today. Golf as part of the community, design as a, one of the more important elements of golf, rather than some of the logistical and economic things mm. that, that might be considered. Do you sense that from – are you in that bubble? I don't see you on Twitter. No. Are you in that bubble or do you observe it from outside? What are your thoughts about that and the potential for that? It feels like there's quite a few young people yeah. involved in that, I think it's extremely great. encouraging. Firstly, I'm not involved in it um, because I'm so – being a T-Rex, a dinosaur <laughs> of some description, I'm so um, – committed to the old way um, because I've got ongoing projects but I do acknowledge that as time goes on the shift will be made and I will join that bubble and I am aware of it You're very welcome Paul Thank you Rod It's it's a lot more fun than it might seem from the outside It's a a wonderful place to be I'm aware of it Um, I don't even have a Twitter account Um, uh, I'm curious when I receive um what do you call it? I get emails. Emails, yes. It, look, I can read the top line, and I thought, oh, I'd love to read what's below that top line. You I'm teased. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's been many good articles I haven't read because I can't get into them. So, it look, um, it, it, I need to make that change, and I'm aware of um, it's very big in uh, Canada and America uh, and, and getting bigger and bigger all the time in Australia. And Podcasts are a part of that too. What we're yes, doing here now yes. is... Yes, it's the opportunities that that opens. Have you? How many? How often would you have expected to sit down with somebody for perhaps an hour or more in a formal interview situation and talked about this stuff? Well, it would have been rare. It, it hasn't happened that often. Mm. I mean, twice in the last twenty years. You've um, done a couple of golf club atlas interviews, I know, yes. which are they're more a written thing, aren't they? More, more written, written, written questions than you yes, write. That's right. So I think it's. I, I, I applaud. I think it's a good thing the the podcast and the new media. Um, focus because it's a sign of the time. It's going with the times. And it's discussion, it's isn't discussion, it? It's discussion, it's content. Um, 
it's live, it's real, and it's you know it's a concession to the fact that the print media, um, you know, has to some degree, the best days are in that rearview mirror. Not to some degree, certainly with to, general... To yeah. more than some degree. In, in niche markets yeah. like magazines, yeah. golf magazines, interestingly, mm. it's still quite healthy. Mm. But it's the niche nature of, I think, it is the key to that. If you, if, you, if you owned a daily newspaper, you would have been very nervous for the last 20 correct. years. Correct, correct. Yeah, it's, it's and it's been an extraordinary change. That's my background, and yeah. that business has changed. It's unrecognisable now. Yeah. Um, to what it was. That, that, there's other issues about that, yes. but the future of journalism and, and its and role in, in and, society. And the, the only newspapers ever trained journalists in the past. That, that's been the reality of yes. it. TV and radio yes. never has. Yes. Yes. Uh, they, they've got nothing to do with, with what we're talking yeah. about. What about the future of books, Paul? Um, the books will have to have already changed, and there's, there's more e-books um, on the market. Are they as satisfying? To, I've, Maybe it's generational. I don't yeah, find them as no. satisfying to read as a printed word on a page. No, you can't beat the um, uh, bringing in all the senses that a golf book or, or a book of any, of any description will have, a coffee table or non, um, uh, a tangible touching, the smell of it, the touch of it, the smell of it, the look of it, um, the feel of it, the weight of it, You know, the GSM, the grams per square metre, mm-hmm. the, um, the thickness of the paper. Good paper is a thing of beauty, isn't it? It is. Really high quality. Yeah, really paper. high paper. It's a, it's a tactile yes. experience yes. to touch it and turn the pages. It and is. And and publishing decisions such as um, at one end of the scale we have say the white or yellow pages or the Bible, which has got you know very low GSM, ten, fifteen, or twenty, and yet up the other end say four hundred GSM, you know, a, an art book on Monet or Rembrandt, you know, where the pages are so thick you can you can barely flick them. It's almost cardboard. Almost cardboard, and so. Um, you know, there's a lot of decision-making going into the thickness of the paper. But, yeah, it's dear, it's, it's, it's labour-intensive. So I see the, the new media, the digital world, which is not new. It's new to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm being it's, 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 it's becoming more new to me. And I'm hearing more about it from a mate of mine, Robbie Williamson. Uh, Robbie Williamson, who's Robbie a member of the National and uh, he is, is uh, my favourite train driver. Yes. And uh, we have a chat. and uh, I deal with him on Twitter all the time. Yeah. Terrific fellow. And Robert was the one who actually said, you know, have you met Rod? Uh, you know, you must uh, have a chat to Rod. Oh. <laughs> he, was, he, he was a bit of a catalyst in that yeah, regard. Yeah, well, thank you, Rob. I'll thank him when I see him yes. uh, in a few yeah. weeks. A few weeks' time. So I know Rob's very active. And, uh, of course, being a train driver, he's, he's not always driving. There's downtime and he... He's very active, and some of my friends are also active. And I, I want to jump in and contribute, but I'm so busy doing mm. the traditional stuff that I can't be in two places at once. The wonderful, the wonderful way to start, Paul, is to follow. The follow. The great yeah. thing about social media is that you don't have to contribute. Mm. And I like Twitter over the others. I don't do Facebook mm. at all. I'm not Instagram. There's some fabulous photography on Instagram, but it's one that I've never... But the, the wonderful nature of Twitter is you choose who you follow mm. and you get their content and content that they have liked or retweeted. And that's a wonderful way to get started. Mm. And at some point, if you do that, at some point you're going to see one that demands a reaction, be it either, are you kidding? That's an absurd <laughs> statement. Or you've just articulated something I've had in mind for 25 years and could never put into words, yeah. so thank you for that. That's what will happen. Yes. That's how you, yeah. And then you'll be away. And then, then someone will respond away. to you, and then you'll be in a conversation. And get right onto it, yes. And, uh, yes. and you'll be a part of it. But there is definitely that, 
that sort of bubble forming. So I, I guess we're saying, to me, it feels like there'll be a future for books in as much as they offer something that you can't get from digital. Yeah, yeah so that's, um, that's a bit going back to Tim Liddy, how he... he, he put on his head this business about slow play that's the, that's a good thing the the escape that is going to take mm-hmm. you so long and that's a good thing and so maybe what you've done there is put a new new feel on books is that because it's all digital mm-hmm. they may actually I'm not saying make a comeback, but they may become um, more appreciated. It becomes a premium product, doesn't it? Yes. The two can coexist. Oh, absolutely. Of course they can. And really the the astute publisher, all all he or she does is really just adjust the print run in line with the the mood, read the mood. Has it grown, Paul? So has book six sold more than book one? Has the interest in the topic grown in the time that you've been... Involved in it's publishing books question. about it. Um, it has, but not significantly. Not enough. Not significantly to no. wave the flag. No. Is what we're getting there. Not yet. No, it's um, it's been a noticeable improvement in the print runs, but not significant enough to say I'm going to go out and get. I need staff. I need two or three assistants. So at this stage, I tackle the whole kit and caboodle and process everything. Um, so that'd be nice if it, it if may, maybe. That might only happen through more association with the digital world and more blogging. I mean, I know I need to. I need to start blogging. Oh, it's not new. People tell you, "Oh, you need to do this." You need. Well, you clearly don't. You're doing. You're you're a clearly happy person without it. <laughs> so you don't need. I'm it. very happy without it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there are certainly mm. things that are worth mm. being involved in, yeah. and, and it's the international scope. I feel like to me is one of the most. You know. Rob's down at mm. the National and tweeting from yep. there and yep. he's tweeting to people who are in yep. America yep. and Scotland all at the yep. same time. Yep. And it's a wonderful mm. – and it really is a conversation, mm. that mm. Twitter thing. Where, oh, you tweet something and somebody replies yes. and responds. It's not always to the good, but no. but it is discussion. No. Uh, all and bits are off, you know, because it's, it's, it's uncontrolled, good. isn't it? And, and that's, that's part an, of the appeal. There's an anonymous factor which mm. can be problematic. So people, when they're anonymous, feel free to yes. say things they yes. would never say – if their name was attached to it, or they'd say. So they have a, a say. They, they have a catchy name, say a, fri- yeah, a fried I'm, egg, I'm, or a. Or yeah. a You've heard of the fried egg, then? Yeah, so yeah. Young Andy, who's doing yeah, fabulous work yeah. in promoting golf course yeah, architecture as, as being yeah. important, and he done that. He mm. does that wonderful mm. podcast series with Tom Doak, mm. yes, which is essentially yeah. architecture for beginners. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. and there's the, that's important because getting started, if you're interested, even if you're mm. you know stridently interested in it, can be quite hard to find the information to teach yourself yes. what some of this stuff yeah, is about. That's, so. that's a great thing is Tom's doing that. Yeah, yep. so it's, uh, it's really interesting. What next then for you, Paul? You d- we did, of course, we touched on it briefly. Your most recent publishing effort was Keith Cutton's book. That's right. It feels like a yeah. very important tome to me in the grand scheme of golf course architecture as a... Um, its contribution and its important part in the game and understanding why and how mm. various... Various factors. I think it's, um, it, is, it assumes importance on a few fronts, but for me, one of the main reasons it assumes some importance is that cleverly Keith, has, Keith Cutton has made a link with architecture has evolved. Everyone knows that. But it has not evolved in isolation. In it, a bubble. It has, or in a bubble. It has evolved in rea- uh, as a reactionary stage to economic and social impacts, what's happening. 
and and global events to wars to currency rates to unemployment rates to social trends mores and as far as i can see he's the first person ever to have articulated this and he did so for for the first time five or six years ago in a thesis Mm. that he presented and um he got the requisite pass and Mm um pat on the back and um, got into architecture in fact it was already in architecture Mm -hmm. and he sat on this thesis for a good five years and then it suddenly struck him that hang on this thesis is interesting. There's some good points in there, and um, I think he realised that this is virgin territory, some of the stuff that he was uncovering. Perhaps it deserves to hit a wider market, become better known. And so he he approached me, and I was flattered that uh, that he did so. And uh, I I wonder, s- if, if you Google golf course architecture publishers, I wonder how many names pop up. I've never, there wouldn't be a lot. I imagine you, you would have been fairly close to the top of the list, which is a feather in your cap, but in all truth, yeah, in if, you're, if you're Keith and you've got that, who do you go to? Yeah, well, look, um, if you've ever heard of you, then you're the obvious choice as far as I can see. Well, it just shows what an outlier I am. <laughs> but uh, the others have said there's no money in this. I'm, I'm running for cover. <laughs> Maybe. The penny hasn't dropped. Yeah. But um, uh, so... I looked at this thesis and I thought, this has got real potential. Um, now, one of the great books ever done was called The Golf Course by Geoffrey Cornish and mm-hmm. Ronald Whitten, mm-hmm. uh, which in approximately, I'll be a year or two out here, around about 80, 1980, 82, mm-hmm. they attempted to, um, to bear public all the different eras of golf course architecture, who have been some of the ma- major players. There's a directory at the back of there's that book, is there not? The back. What courses have been designed yeah. by who, yeah. And, and also there's a page in there, or several pages, that look at the lineage. Uh, for instance, old Tom Morris, um, who, who apprenticed with him, who, who then broke away, mm. who was influenced by old Tom, and it goes down. Uh, and then in some ways, everyone... Is, is to some degree been influenced by somebody who is influenced by, by somebody who was influenced by Tom, old Tom. Yep, anyway, so that was a wonderful achievement, and and Jeffrey Cornish particularly um, was who who died just short of a hundred. I think it was ninety eight. That's a good knock. Ninety eight, and he was um, um, very scholarly scholarly type, as is Ronald Whitten. They put together something we thought was very good, but. Um, Keith, Keith obviously bought it. It was one of the first books Keith bought, and he thought um, there, there could be some differences, uh, new information that they didn't cover, um, perhaps some areas that could be covered slightly better. And, of course, there's all the new information that wasn't around then. So we looked at it and, and said, let's give it a go. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a go. So it's done, and it's done pretty well, hasn't it? I think it's probably surprised Keith a little bit. He well. was nervous yeah, about yeah, it. Nervous. I know that. We had him on our other podcast and oh, he was I nervous. Yeah, the first um the first book um is is really hard. It's it's a it's it's a, a leap it's a big scary adventure. You swing it? from we're not gonna be able to keep up with demand yeah. to not one person's going to buy this book, I imagine. Yeah. And both of those emotions happen in the space of about a second and a half. Yeah, that's right. And you're one hundred percent convinced of each as you have yeah. the thought. That's right. And it's one thing for him to have had personal um convictions about architecture and who he who he admired and who he perhaps did not um, but then to to go into print and, and lay that bare mm. is it's not well, just the money it costs a lot of money absolutely. to do it and you know paying a, 
um, someone across the around around the other world. There's a personal stake, though, isn't it? It's a reputation, credibility, credibility, all of those credibility. things are at risk. And he was, you know, because he was mentored by the great Roddy Whitman, who is probably the the least known great architect. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's been invisible, and he's unlike some, he's completely shunned publicity. But he's one of the greats, um, and of course, he was mentored by um, um, Bill Core. As was Keith. So anyway, Keith, this is part of a thank you for for Keith's mentors to to show them that look, I did take in some information along the way. Thank you, mentors. But there's some new information here as well. Um, so we look to 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 say who are the the influential architects, the writers, influential um, developers, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, I think he, he did a good job. Mm. Two questions to finish up. Mm. That evolution idea of golf not developing in a bubble mm. but responding to all sorts of other market forces, I feel like we still see that today. That's been the success of Bamboo and Bandon and Cabot. There's a demand for that. Yes. Ergo, we supply that. Yes, yes. So I'm, that was not really a question, I guess. Yes. That was more a statement. No. And thankfully, you've agreed with me, so I don't have to edit that out. So I, I was correct about that, which is nice. But That's more correct. importantly... Mm. It begs the question, what's next? What is next, yeah. Do you give this much thought? Because we're in an era of, to, to really dumb it down, you said beautiful blowout bunkers mm. and very, um, you know, bold and wild-looking aesthetic yeah. golf course with good strategic bones. I, I think, yeah, I've, I've given it some thought. Um, the highly organic, bare-bones um, post Sand Hill era, uh, which has spawned many things in remote, invariably coastal. Nebraska is not coastal, but of course it's it's dunes. It's dunes, and it's um, it's in um, in a region that has the I think one of the largest aquifers in the world. So I don't know. There maybe was a sea there many mm-hmm. moons ago, but um, invariably, and I know this from reading Keith's book and being intimately involved in it, there will come a time when that's on the nose. There, there will be a new wave that people will, will be a, a harsh reaction away from mm-hmm. um, big lacy bunkers uh, with edges and um, uh, organic and minimalist, you know, that, that won't be around forever. So what is next? I think sustainability, shorter courses. Um, what I'm really hoping for is the realisation that in time the club expectation from the average club golfer of having green verdant stripes is totally unsupport so you can't be supported. It costs a lot of money. And resources. It costs a lot of money, a lot of resources. But a finite. It creates a finite. It creates unrealistic expectations in agronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we've got people that can't break 100 making comments like, oh, I've got a bad lie out there today. You know, mm. I mean, this is getting a long way away from the old uh, St Andrews, you know, model and um, the old British way. We go out and hit the ball, you, you hit it again, you find it, your lie might be okay, you'll have varying stances. But, um, you know, the, the push to equate better condition courses with better courses is anathema to me. I'll never buy into it. To me, it's it's the quality of the architecture, um, the way the, the thing is being constructed. Maintenance can come and go. I won't be talking about golf courses in, in terms of their, their appearance. Um, I think 
the water's okay. We're going to struggle with water, mm-hmm. and architects have to be really, really on the ball. So golfers and committees and the entire game needs yeah. to get with that program. Yeah. So Some made dire it. predictions about water. Yeah. I read one from the UK the other week that by 2050 they'll be underwater stress yes. in the UK. Correct. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know that's... Think about that. In the UK. In the UK yeah. industry. Yeah. Think about that. So that's madness. When, when people go to Kingston Heath, they see, um, you know, all those beautiful browns and greens and all the intermingling and the slightly rustic look and the native rust. It's quite magnificent, and yet people go there and sometimes say, "Oh, gee, it was really quite brown." You know, terrible condition. You know, if they've come off the national, which is incredibly green all year round, uh, regardless of, mm-hmm. um, they can they can put a kings and heath down, and I've heard that quite a bit recently. It's it's a, well, it's it's not an, an informed comment no. and so but it's symptomatic that that club golfers are reared on the f- fact that the fairways have to be perfect the bunkers have to be perfect well perhaps that's if you think of that opinion in all clubs around the world maybe that's one of the reasons why the the game's under a lot of stress and is over there yeah um that Imagine that on the ground crew and the superintendent mm-hmm. and the board level and all the equipment they have to buy to keep fueling uh, unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. So I think that's next. Yeah. Uh, somehow getting across to, to club golfers that if you love golf, if you want to make it, if you always want your golf course to be there, we have to have a complete 360 uh, turnaround on, on what is fair and reasonable to present to you. Beautifully circular way you've brought this around to an end by opening the final can of worms, Paul. <laughs> yeah, there's a two-hour discussion in that topic that alone, but we won't delve into no. it. All I can do is thank you. Thank you, right? Really, for taking the time. It's been magnificent to chat to you, and I hope our listeners I've enjoyed it very enjoyed much. it as much as I have. Yeah, thank I you, right? It's uh, you're a gentleman and a scholar. And thank you. <laughs> I've been called a lot of things, Paul. No. Never have I been called a gentleman or a scholar. Thank but you. Peter, thank you for your time. Thanks, Rod. There is so much to chew on in that interview, and what a delight it was for me personally to have the opportunity to sit and talk about the game with Paul. I felt like his passion for every facet of golf shone through brightly, and I hope that you enjoyed his insights as much as I did. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and fellow golfers and make sure to let us know what you think via all the avenues that I've listed in the show notes. That wraps up Episode 5 of The Thing About Golf, but make sure to come back next time when we meet one of only a handful of PGA Life members and one of the great protectors of the game in this country, Tom Moore.